Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment. Radio BX is a natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings. I'm your host, Yatza Frank, and I'll be talking with leaders who are driving positive change across the country and abroad. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. And we are live. Welcome to Radio BX. It's June 18th, 2020. I'm Yatza Frank with the Building Energy Exchange. Buildings are such a ubiquitous part of our lives, and they change so slowly over time that we tend not to think of them as incubators of technology. Technology, in quotes, is the word we apply to rapidly evolving consumables that unveil new versions every year, like cell phones or cars. But even bricks are technology. And when your building is going to be around for 100 years or more, it's important that you get that technology right. And this is where the field of building science comes in. The myriad disciplines researching and analyzing how we can improve the performance of the systems that make up our buildings. It's an incredibly important field, although largely unsung, and few people have contributed more to the advancement of building science in the last 50 years than our guest today, Stephen Selkowitz. The longtime group leader of the Windows and Envelope Materials Group at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, Steve has driven the advancement of high-performance building envelopes for decades and was a primary force behind the creation of FlexLab, the facility for low-energy experiments in buildings, a testbed facilities uh, that allows for the testing of energy-efficient te- efficiency technologies in a highly instrumented but real-world environment. FlexLab is essentially a building that is a laboratory where you can roll out new materials and and new systems. Steve has long focused on glazing, shading, and daylighting systems, and we here at BX were honored to partner with Steve and his team at LBNL on one of our early projects, the Living Lab for Advanced Daylighting Controls in 2014. The recipient of numerous awards and accolades, Steve is a central figure in any discussion of building envelope performance. Stephen Sokowitz, welcome to Radio BX. Hi, thanks for having me this morning. Of course, of course. Really excited to have this conversation. Steve, I wanted to start um, with where you started. Uh, how did you determine that building science was going to be your field? And, and sort of within that decision, how did you end up focusing on facades and envelopes? So if I go back to, um, well, early, well, I won't say childhood, but, but, but college anyway, I started more on the science side. I was a physics major in, in college, but I was there at a time, actually a time of some turmoil, not entirely unlike what's going on now, late, late 60s, mm. Vietnam War protests, tear gas, uh, lots, of, um, yeah. lots of change going on. And although I love the science, it wasn't clear to me where I would end up if I kept on that path. I ended up spending a summer in New York City, actually, with a program with Buckminster Fuller called World Game. And um, his theme was that design science is the way to solve the world's problems. And uh, he he has a famous quote, you can put the politicians on a rocket ship and send them into space and the world won't change. But if you don't push science and you don't push push innovation, then you're going to be in trouble over time. So I ended up working in that program that summer. And some of the people involved with that actually then were starting a new school out on the West Coast called California Institute of the Arts which was sort of built around some of the themes that Fuller was, was pushing. So as a, as a physics grad from the East Coast, I said, oh, let's try my first graduate years on the West Coast in an, in an entirely different realm. 
And I figured I'd try it for a while and see what happens. And, you know, that was 45 <laughs> or so years ago. So it sort of, it worked out, it worked out fairly well for me. It sure, certainly did. And how did you uh, end up focusing on, on facades, on, on, on the envelopes of buildings? So uh, I think some of that happened back again in the early 70s. And there, there was, after 73, which was the first so-called oil crisis, right. there was a lot of attention paid to why are buildings so, so, so poorly performing. And uh, people looked pretty quickly at mostly single glazed windows and said, gee, that's a problem. Actually spent another summer in New York City with an engineering firm at the time that had an early grant from the Department of Energy to kind of figure out, well, what, what can we do? And we spent a lot of time, well, yeah, we, I guess there was a lot of time looking at real buildings and looking at the calcs. And it was pretty clear that there was a giant opportunity on the, on the envelope of the building. Okay. And so part of that was a sort of a thermal issue. It was, why does the heat leak out and why do you let the heat in? So that's the sort of the solar issue, the thermal issue. But the other part was recognizing that the biggest load back in the 70s and 80s in buildings was often in office buildings, was often lighting. And of course, if you let the daylight in and you could use it and turn the lights off, then you can save a lot of energy. Yeah. So uh, those sort of three things sort of co coalesced into a, a theme that kind of you know, captured my attention at the time. And, and the, pro the project that I started at, at Berkeley Lab, the first paper I ever wrote there when I, so I joined Berkeley Lab in 76. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't actually explain that. I was in Southern California. I was teaching first at CalArts, then at SciArc. So I was teaching architects. I started a consulting firm. And actually the first consulting jobs I got were built around the new California Title 24 code that restricted window areas. And I have to con confess or concede here that those jobs were, was hired by people that wanted to build beautiful houses on the on the beach on the California coast facing west. And the code said you shouldn't use west glass because you have big cooling loads. Sure. But the compliance path said, well, if you do other things in the building and make them you know, more efficient than the, 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 the co-compliant co building, then that was okay. So my job was to figure out how to, make, how, how to allow them to do that. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to hope that they actually followed through on all the designs we had and the buildings performed as we expected. Can't guarantee that I was never back to visit any of them. But because I was involved with that, sort of the intersection between practice and science, when uh, Berkeley Labs started in the mid '70s to um, ramp up its effort, uh, th they were looking for people that had again a foot in science and a foot in the real world. And one of the big areas that the Department of Energy was interested in was the envelope, was windows, glazing, daylighting, and envelope. And I seemed to be the right person for that. So again, I figured, well, I'd I'd try it for a few years, and that that went on for a lot longer <laughs> than I thought. I also should should mention that I grew up on the East Coast. And having spent, I guess, six years in Los Angeles, between the smog and the driving, wasn't really crazy about it. So mo moving up the coast of it was sort of nice from a personal point of view and environmental point of view as well. But so, so one of the things we started, the first, the first projects we did were on windows. Uh, single glazed windows were obviously terrible. What could you do about them? We ended up working on low E glazings, which back then were kind of a science uh, project and now are 90% of all windows sold. So there was a case where, again, over 40 years with lots of partners and lots of help, uh, we went from a concept to standard practice in the, in the industry. Other things like the use of daylight haven't been quite as successful in terms of market penetration, but there's, there's hope for that as well. 
And so broadening out, you know, one of the things that, that we did was important was to look at the facade and the envelope in an integrated way. If you yeah. try to optim- if you try to minimize solar solar heat gain and cooling, um, you can do that by blocking all the light, but then you don't get any daylight review. So this optimization issue was a challenge then, it's still a challenge now. And we kind of built the program, I think, around all the different aspects. And at the beginning, most of that focus was on energy. Increasingly, it's been on things like thermal and visual comfort, um, and, and also recently on productivity and performance and health and well-being and you and so on. So it's become a really interesting sort of broad-based set of activities that yeah. look at many different aspects yeah. of the facade. Do you feel like those uh, non-energy benefits uh, are compelling to the decision makers, the kind of owners in the industry, and in the same way that we felt, those of us that are kind of green building advocates felt that energy was compelling uh, as an argument? Do you think it's getting traction? I think it's getting traction, and I think it's getting traction at the what I'll just call the buzz level. People talk about it a lot. Right. The question is, are they doing anything about it? <laughs> right. Yeah, right. And and well, talking about it's the first step. If you're not talking about it, it's probably not on your radar screen. So I, I think I think that's good. Um, one of the things, if you're going to do something about it, you need, of course, you need products, but you also need tools and metrics and guidelines, and so that whole set of activities has been underway for some time. Um, as in any new area, there's this confusion at times about what are the right metrics, what are the right, right. targets to meet in those metrics. Right. And I think we're still going through that. The other thing that I think is, is tricky, it's both an opportunity and a challenge, is that buildings are very different. I mean, climate is different, orientation is yeah, different, yeah. an office is different than retail, it's different from a school, it's different from a hospital room. So something that makes perfectly good sense in an office might not work in a hospital room. Sure. So sort of uh, fine-tuning or tweaking those kinds of criteria and metrics to meet all, all those different needs needs to be done also. Uh, and that's really a work in progress still. Well, that, that's, it, that's something you've been working on for years is this whole idea of integrating the different elements of the facade, right? That Right. You know, we tend right. to think of them in silos. You choose a window, you choose a, you know, you either do or don't have interior, exterior shading. Um, and those uh, decisions are made individually, uh, sometimes based on individual cost benefit analysis and not in a kind of integrated fashion. And it seems like that was one of the, one of the reasons the Flex Lab, um, you know, seemed like such a strong um, idea is to have a place where you could kind of test bed these integrated ideas. Yeah, that was that was a key to that work. In fact, the Flex Lab is, I think, like the I'm trying to think now, the fourth generation of getting our hands dirty with those integration issues in, in the field. Hmm. So, I mean, we we have some test beds that we do in a laboratory environment, and you learn certain things from those. But introducing weather, climate, or weather. Uh, the you know the the, the sun the w- the wind the temperature changes and all that is really pretty important. Now you can also do that in in existing buildings, and we've done a fair amount of that as well. But th- there's all there's all kinds of problems with, with existing buildings. I mean, you don't want to interfere too much with what's going on. Um, the buildings themselves are complicated. You don't always know what it is you're testing uh, in in an existing building because it may not be built as designed. So being able to do it in a test bed, I think you know adds a lot. And, and, and you're right, the key is is the systems that what you're looking at, well, going back half a step on the envelope, one of the reasons there's been so much attention to HVAC and lighting 
and not as much in some sense to the envelope is because the HVAC and lighting are plugged into the building power system and you can easily meter or measure what they're doing. Right. So you can right. tell that an LED is better than a fluorescent because you can meter it for yeah. 12 hours and you see what's going on. Uh, the, the, the envelope itself isn't drawing energy, isn't requiring energy itself. It, it is inducing energy needs on HVAC, but that's a second order effect. And in fact, if you put the same envelope system in two different buildings with two different HVAC systems, right. you'll get two different energy uses. Right. So that integration is, 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 is as you're hinting, is, is really important. The, the, the other thing is that it's important in, in, in any building, but if you're trying to get to net zero or to uh, any kind of, you know, really pushing the state of the art performance levels, then it becomes even, even more critical. All those little details matter. And um, that's where it's important to be able to kind of prove it out in a test bed first. Uh, and we've got a number of really interesting examples where, uh, where, where we've done that. We've solved a bunch of real, real world problems at the level of a thousand square feet. You sort of make your mistakes at, at the thousand <laughs> right. square foot level rather than the million square foot level. <laughs> right. Right. Um, it's a testament to how long you've been away from the East Coast that you referred to what you have out there as weather um, in <laughs> California. Uh, but but um, right. but it is it is a great point that I think um, that makes uh, it difficult to scale innovation in the building industry is that you know buildings uh, you know even buildings that look identical in the same place can have very you know two office towers in Midtown you know one could have a a nine to five insurance company and the other could have a, a kind of twenty four seven three sixty five data center media company yeah. or something so um, they, these two things operate really really differently and have very different needs uh, and it makes it really really difficult um, to kind of scale to scale those issues and that's one of the reasons it seems like FlexLab um, is such a great uh, contribution to um, to this field. It seems it's interesting that daylighting really was part of what your earliest work. Um, I might have thought that that kind of came um, it came later, and it's in fact that's what drew us together. Uh, and um, when I was working here at right. BX early on, you you worked with us on our our one of our first report uh, as an organization, "Let There Be Daylight," which was about right. um, you know the 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 contribution that daylighting systems could make to reducing energy in office spaces in New York, which is very significant. And that led to that the Living Lab project that I described previously, the demonstration, and then also it led to the development of the Daylight Hour, which is our sort of our social media campaign that we do every year. Um, and it's, it's this Monday coming, which is one of the reasons we're doing this interview now is to kind of highlight um, that, you know, daylighting as, a, as an issue um, in advance of daylight hour. Um, do you, and what do you think that is that you mentioned that daylighting has not had the penetration of, of say, you know, low E coatings or that kind of thing. Um, what do you think is holding that back? I mean, is it just, I mean, it seems like low E coatings, from my experience working as an architect, one of the reasons it had penetration is because it's something that could improve things and had no visual or aesthetic impact on, on what the architects were doing. <laughs> they could like not think about it in those terms. Um, is that the thing that kind of holds back daylighting is that you immediately start talking about, you know, shading and exterior systems and things that have these major aesthetic choices? Yeah, I think the aesthetics are part of it, but I think the other big piece is uh, it's sort of the dichotomy between passive and active. Uh, the point of right. a of a of any any of these coatings, double glazing, triple coatings, gases, all the neat things you can do to 
make windows more insulating. Once you put them in, <clears throat> excuse me, once you've installed, well, you put them in the window and then installed the window, they work for 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, right. which is great. And, and all else being equal, um, you know, well, one of the things I did a lot of in the 70s was passive solar energy, right? So passive right. Uh, strategies in general are great when, when they make sense and when you can use them. The problem, and in terms of um, super insulating a wall, for example, or putting thermal mass in the building, those are really important. The challenge with the windows, which are unique in many ways, is again, day to night, uh, cloudy to clear day, uh, summer to winter, yeah. massive change in the environment that the window sees. And you know, this is you know, sort of uh, energy efficiency 101, but you wanna let the solar heat in in the winter, but you want yeah. to keep it out in the summer. And even when you let it in in the winter, maybe you want to be careful about not letting in the glare, letting in the glare, right. but not the glare. Right. So the essence of the problem is how do you optimize something? And the other thing that's interesting is if you think about the range, um, going from a sunny day to nighttime, that's a huge range. I mean, I could start to throw numbers like a kilometer a square foot of energy and all that at you, but they're really, really big numbers. They aren't, they aren't trivial numbers. Yeah. And um, I mean, everyone knows that experientially. You can sit in a room, a small room that's generally comfortable because the sun's not there and then the sun comes around. If there's no cooling in the room and it's really bright, um, within an hour, that room is going to be uncomfortably warm. So you're intrinsically in a real world environment that's characterized by change. And the design response then ought to be uh, a dynamic, intelligent, active response to those needs. Now, in an ideal world, um, people could do all that. I mean, we're smart. So you're sitting in that room I described before, and the sun comes around, you could pull the shade down. Or you'd be even smarter and say, hey, I know the sun's coming down. I'm going to you know, pull it down before the sun gets there rather than waiting until it's been there for an hour or so, right? right. Um, but there's been all kinds of studies. But human beings are interesting creatures. <laughs> Um, and shock of all shocks, they don't always do what you would want them to do or yep. hope them to do or expect them to do. Yep. People are busy. They have other priorities. And there's been all kinds of field studies. Actually, th th this work is ongoing now, too. But there's been a lot of work in the past that says, in, in the case of windows and shading, that people do not operate shading systems efficiently. Sure. Now, they will, they will tend to operate them to control glare and comfort uh, after the fact. Um, but they won't do it, say, for winter, summer energy no. management, all those kinds of things. They'll also do it for privacy, of, of course, by the way, which is good. So if you're counting on um, that kind of operation in order to get your energy efficiency, you're probably going to be disappointed. So the next response is, okay, let's make them automated, smart, intelligent. And we've spent quite a bit of time doing that. Um, I mean, like all of my career at the lab, <laughs> I mean, there are things we started back in the late 70s that, 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 that sort of linked to that and more. I mean, I, I guess I'd start with the daylighting issue. If you're going to save lighting energy with daylighting, you have to control the electric lights and nothing you do with the glass or the shading, uh, you know, by itself makes the light turn off or dim. Right. So the first integration challenge you have is you need to cleverly and cautiously and appropriately admit the daylight when and where you want it as much as you want it. But having done that, if you're using this as an energy strategy, then you have to dim the lights. And for 25 to 30 years, I guess, um, 
that was a pretty hard thing to do. It still is a somewhat hard thing to do. I mean, we, I think we once interviewed architects or did a survey and said, how many of you use daylighting as a strategy in your building? And 90% of them said they did. And we questioned a little bit further. It was what they were saying really was, yeah, we have windows and skylights and skylights right, like, right. and that's great. That's the right start. But then if you ask them, are you controlling the electric lighting to save energy? Whoops. Nope. Um, <laughs> out of the budget, couldn't do it, too complicated, whatever. Yeah. So um, the numbers I've seen for years, and I don't think they've changed all that much, are, you know, two, three, four, five percent of the installations maybe have controls. Now, the good news there is that um, dimming a fluorescent light was actually pretty complicated. It won't get into the yeah, yeah. physics of the plasma in a tube. But with the advent of LEDs now, it's much cheaper and simpler yeah. and easier. Smoke dimming from you know, 100% power to 5% or 10% or off is actually achievable yeah. at marginal extra cost. Um, the other thing you had was the whole sensor problem is, how, you know, if, if you're not going to do it, if the person's not going to do it, how do you know when to dim? Well, right. you want a sensor. So you put a sensor in the ceiling. You put one sensor in a room <laughs> 200 square feet, or maybe you put three sensors. You have to wire those sensors up. Wiring the sensors takes time and money, right? Yeah. So now fast forward 20 years, you've got wire, wireless sensors. With the LED world, you've got smarts and almost in many cases, you have smarts and intelligence in every light fixture. Yeah. You have low power to the fixtures. You have wireless, wireless communication. So you've actually got all the infrastructure we wanted for 30 years for daylighting is almost built in, I argue, is almost built in for free yeah. in the LED world. Yeah. The only the, the, the downside, if you want to call it that, is that uh, the power density, which when I started was like <laughs> three watts per square foot, right. and more recently was maybe a watt to watt and half a square foot, with the best LEDs now is getting down in the range of half a watt per square yeah. foot. Yeah. Um, and therefore the savings. So if I save 70, 80%, which we can still do with daylight, that's 70 or 80% of a much smaller number. So then when you get your pencil out and you say, what's the payback, you're going to be in a little more trouble than you were in the past. But that's where you get to your point about bundling of all the other yeah. benefits as well. I mean, you pointed out that um, sort of really focusing on the facades, um, how the degree to which the facade drives the performance of the building mostly happens when people are reaching for sort of really lofty goals like a net zero project because until that point you're you know the it, it's not compelling enough to go beyond those first order um, direct impacts like the efficiency of equipment and lighting and things like that it has also seemed like europe is always much more advanced than us in terms of the facades um, that they were you know on a pretty you know as sort of standing operating procedure uh, willing to kind of put on to um, to clad their buildings in. And I wonder, do you think that that is, that it's primarily just because their codes were more advanced that they were, they were uh, further ahead in that regard? Or was there some other, some, something else going on there? Yeah, I think there's a bunch of things going on there. Um, first of all, I, I wanted to start though, back half a step, which is um, to reinforce your, your, your sort of first point. And that is that if you look at buildings from before, let's say the 1930s, 40s, 50s, look at the plan and the shape of a building. Yeah. You would rarely ever find a building if it wasn't single, if it was single story building, you put skylights in, problem solved, I can retire, right? <laughs> but if you have a multi-story building, which most buildings are, um, and it's before you have cheap 
fluorescent lighting, uh, th then what people did was the plan of the building, the footprint of the building, basically had no occupied space more than 30 or 40 feet from the, the, the edge of the building, yeah. the facade. So the need for, and air as well. I mean, you ventilated the building by opening. We had these things called openable windows, right? So you provided fresh air and cooling with openable windows. You provided daylight with, and that, that actually drove the shape and design of the buildings. You get all these elegant fingered type buildings with sort of U's and W's and, and all those yeah. right shapes, yeah. right? Okay, once you get AC and fluorescent lighting, now you can do anything you want in the building independent of where the glass and the windows are, right? right? So that was a profound change that, that you know, was driven by land value and cost and lots of other things. So I think what's happened partly over the last um, 20, 30 years is people are rediscovering those other issues. But going back to your question now in Europe, um, in Europe, you, well, Europe had basically the same lighting we had. But A, they did not have the air conditioning that we had, or at least not as much of it. In fact, there are places in Europe today where you're not allowed to put air conditioning in unless you can prove <laughs> that you can't keep the, you know, the building comfortable with other right. means. Um, they tend to have, you tend to have higher, higher sealed buildings which let the daylight in deeper and all that. So there's a whole host of issues. Uh, also, energy was more expensive, and so they paid more attention to it. Um, so I think there were a host of, of, of issues that all align themselves and sort of drove more interest in them. And then the other thing I think is that, um, and again, this is, you know, oversimplifying very complex issues. Um, but in Europe in general, I think buildings were built for the longer term. Um, I mean, Europe was around longer and built for the longer term. In the U.S., um, again, in real estate markets, you build a building for 10 years and you flip it. Or, so, you know, you don't, you don't think of it always as a long-term investment. Uh, when you think of it as a long-term investment, then you may be willing to put more money into the envelope. I mean, one of the other important issues is, I mean, historically, lighting got replaced every 10 or 15 years. HVAC got replaced every 20, 25, 30 years or updated. Uh, envelope was there for 50 or 100 yeah, years, yeah, right? Yeah. So logically, if you're going to make an investment, you should put all your money into the envelope because that's going to be with you forever. Um, that's not the way people think. <laughs> right. That's not the way you know cost optimization is done and value engineering is done, and, and that's part of the problem. Yeah. And so we basically got away with relatively poor windows. Now the the, the other aspect too would be that in Europe, at least in the northern two thirds of Europe, uh, cold climate. So you got a lot more double glazing than at least initially you had in the U.S. That's changed now, yeah. but at least if you start the way in northern Europe now. Triple glazing is largely required by code also. Yeah. I mean, you seem, I mean, triple glazing uh, has become a much bigger part of the conversation in the Northeast, um, largely because of the introduction of Passive House as a, as a sort of, you know, model, as right. a way to kind of look at buildings. Um, and it's, it was inter it's interesting to me that like Passive House in a lot of the ways sort of embeds many of the principles that you and others have been a sort of espousing for years, a sort of envelope first um, approach. But in terms of glazing, um, I think a lot of folks on the passive house side would just like there to be more of these triple glazed type units available with these like really um, heavily thermally broken uh, frames um, and that the market might sort of take care of that. But you also, you seem to be kind of espousing that there's more advancements to be made um, in the sort of window components field, sort of thinner glazing, thinner systems. Can you talk a little bit about that work? Sure. 
Sure. So um, going back half a step again, um, starting in the 70s, 80s, the world was single and double glazed, single double clear glazed. Yeah. We've made this great advancement now with coatings, with gas fills and coatings with double. And um, in, in, in rough terms, we talk about our values of glazing. I, it's not <clears throat> always the case, but yeah. just to keep the world simple here, <laughs> yeah. uh, s- single glazing is R1, clear double glazing is R2. When you put a coating in a gas in that same double glazing, you go from R2 to R4. If you take that uh, double glazing, that R4 double glazing, and you now put a piece of a, a third piece of glass in the middle and an extra coating, you go to R8. So you've actually doubled the insulating value up to the R8 level. The average window sold is about R3. Now that's the glass that gets more complicated because the frame and the sash yeah. drop the R value a bit. Um, but the, the challenge is that we've got uh, an industry that is largely, I'm going to talk in generalities here, there are always exceptions, largely built um, window infrastructure around a double glazed unit. And those double glazed windows are the IG, what's called the IGU, yeah. the insulating glass yeah. unit, and then the sash and the frame. And the idea is typically uh, three quarters of an inch residential, maybe an inch commercial. And if it's optimized for that double glazing, I won't go into all the technical sure. details. Um, if you now try to make the double triple, um, you've made the glass 50% heavier. Mm. Yep. You want to make it wider. And if you're a window company, you have to redesign the sash and the frame to accommodate a heavier, wider IGU. Now, that's not impossible. It's not only not impossible, it's routinely done yep. in much of Europe. And something like 2% of all windows sold in the US are triples. So it's not that it can't be done. It's that if you're a window company, you say, do I want to spend X hundred thousand or million dollars to retool my entire production line for a market that's not there yet? So now, now I'm going to blame the architects, <laughs> the engineers, and the owners, right. right? I'm going to side with the window company saying, we're happy to make better windows. Yep as long as the market's out there. So one of the things we've done to try to thread the needle there is we've said, what if you can take your existing three quarter inch IGU, your glass package, and make it an R8 triple glazing? Right. And it turns, it turns out you can do that. The way you do it is you take the glass from your, your iPhone or your laptop display, which is a half a millimeter, really thin. Normal glass is, in homes is three millimeters, in office buildings it's six millimeters. So it's very, very lightweight, very thin and lightweight. Stick it in the middle of the of the glass unit. Now you have two quarter inch gaps rather than one half inch gap. And argon gas, which is in most of them now, doesn't work well. So you put in a new gas, Krypton gas, mm. and once and you put in a second low E coating. Those are all off the shelf items. If you've done that, you now have an R eight insulating wow. glass unit. So what we're saying to the window company is, if you want to make your window, if you put an R eight glass in a window, you end up with about an R five or six window. Um, so you can now make your window go from R3 to R5 simply by changing the glass. You don't have to redesign your glass. Now, good news, bad news. That's actually something I patented in 1989 or 1990, and it sat on the shelf for 25 years because no one could make the glass. Right. People did make stre- plastic stretch film, I should say. And in New York City, the Empire State Building was retrofit with triple glazing with thin plastic film. It works fine, but it's a little more complicated, a little more expensive, and not many companies do it. So now it turns out, and then even five years ago, thin glass was expensive and hard to find. But there's now almost as much thin glass sold in the world for TVs and displays as there are windows. So there's lots of people out there that know how to handle it, cut it, clean it, and all that. They don't have to be window companies, but they happen to be (laughs) other companies. So we're hopeful that uh, we're going to see 
you know, a change in, in that market. We're doing projects in California around the country to try to do, to build prototypes with two or three window companies that have adopted it. Um, if people want to find out more information, they can contact me. I won't talk about brand names and all that here, but, but it, it's certainly out there. And of course, if people use a conventional triple, that's fine too. Most of the passive house units you're, you're talking about use conventional triple. A lot of them, by the way, import them from Europe, yes. which is interesting. Uh, it's, it, I guess it's a, it's a measure that they can't find them in the U.S. Yeah. And again, the, 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 the one other aspect that, that was sort of we, we learned early on for putting our research hats on is that in, in the real world, price is dependent not just on the, on the design details, but on volume. Of course. And if you're making 20 units a day, you have one cost. If you're doing the same thing, but making 2,000 units a day, the cost comes down quite a bit. So once again, back to the market. If the market isn't asking for a lot of these units, the window companies are going to make them by hand. They're going to be expensive. If they're expensive, the architect won't inspect them. If the architect doesn't inspect them, the industry doesn't invest. So that, that vicious cycle is what we're trying to break through and transform the markets. And I think we have a, a shot at doing that. That's one of the things I'm investing some of my um, <clears throat> excuse me, some of my time in these days as a as a retired person. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's uh, there are other reasons as well. Um, to uh, to favor a thinner triple glazed unit thing, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of the standard triple glazed units come from Europe. So there's the transportation, um, both cost and carbon impact of that transportation. So if we could do more of that here, um, that would be a benefit to this market. Um, and then there's the embodied carbon of the units themselves. Yeah. And so, yep. you know, you have a heavier, you know, all those numbers, 50% heavier, 50% wider, that's usually 50% more material of some description, which has its own mm -hmm. sort of, you know, embodied carbon impacts. And so that is, are you researching that end of things at all? Or is it more on the just on the kind of the, the energy impacts of the, of the units themselves. Yeah, we're certainly looking at that. Um, it, it's been an interesting debate and argument going on in the industry. I mean, I've seen at least one paper that claims that the embodied energy in the third piece of glass is greater than the savings. I don't believe that's true, but I need to go back and look at that. But it's certainly true that if you make the glass thinner using less energy and all being equal, that's going to be better. The numbers I've seen show that you're still saving energy, but I think this trend from going from operating energy to embodied energy, or to include, it's not it's not either or, it's both and, right? Yeah. And so, as a, as a rough rule of thumb, when we looked at it a long time ago, um, you know, I, I think if I remember correctly, the the the, the embodied or, or the operating energy was about ninety percent of total lifetime energy, but that's because buildings were inefficient. If you make the building three or four times more efficient, now the embodied energy is up in the ballpark of you know, being equal to or almost as important as, as the operating energy. So one of the things I've been doing um, lately is I do some consulting work in Europe for some research groups in Europe, and they're explicitly focusing on operational versus embodied energy. Yeah. Um, and they want to produce designs that, that, that on an overall basis same. Now, the one other point to be careful of is there's energy and there's carbon. So if, you're, if you talk about embodied energy or operating energy, and the energy is coming from renewable sources, that's one thing. If it's coming from dirty, dirty electricity, sure, for example, sure. it's worse. And late, I've been doing some work for the glass industry in Europe, actually, and they highlight the fact that there's a lot of electricity that goes into making glass furnaces and all that, and that the they claim that the glass in Europe 
has only about one quarter of the embodied energy in glass from China because most electricity in China comes from coal-fired power plants. Oh, that's and the electricity used to make glass in Europe is much cleaner. So those are real numbers. I mean, those may change over time. And so it, it is interesting then, again, going back to a comment you made before about what's the metric. Is it is it energy per square meter uh, or or carbon per square meter, and is it is it you know is it as built or, or operating over time? And on the on the one hand, it's good that we're we're sort of sort of looking at all these other new factors. On the other hand, it makes life more complicated. It right. makes the job of an architect or an engineer more complicated, more costly. And sometimes people say, "Don't don't bother with it. I don't want to be bothered." But I think we have to be bothered. Yeah, I mean, and the other the other thing that I think. Uh our conversation about triple glazing has has left out a little bit is this this move to r8 isn't just an energy benefit it's also a major comfort benefit you know sure. if you go back to that the example you were using before of you're sitting in a room doesn't have any direct daylight in it as the direct daylight comes into the room it changes dramatically your comfort level in there um, with triple glazing it the the difference is really staggering in terms of yeah, especially in the winter months i would say the kind of inverse of that example that you can sit next to a window in, in winter and it's not, you don't get that cold radiant chill that you, you get most of the time. And I think most of our industry is not kind of attuned to that. And I think that, that a lot of these more knowledge sharing around that will be really, really important in the years to come. Yeah, well, let me make a few comments about that. First of all, um, going to R8 is R8 glazing. Again, I wanna be careful, right. is glazing in these windows. Um, but the other exciting thing is to go even further. We can get this, this uh, technology called vacuum insulating glass, which is two pieces of glass with a vacuum between just a tiny gap. A, I won't go into all the other details. Bottom line is you can get up to about an R12 or so glazing that way. Mm. And then in the design, I'm talking about that, that triple, we call it the thin triple because the glass is thin and the triple cavity is thin. Yeah. If you push the cavity out to a little over an inch, you can turn it into a quad, put two pieces of thin glass right. in. Now, now you're talking about R15 wow. as the center glass value, which is better than many walls, yeah, right? Absolutely. So now to your, to your point about comfort, um, uh, you're, you're exactly right. There's also some, some acoustic effects as well that we'll get into, but that's a benefit. But comfort's really important. Uh, people like a lot of glass because they like the view and the, the, the connection with the outdoors. Um, but even if the, if the heater in the room can keep the space warm in, in, in winter, you still have this problem s sitting by your large glass window. So that comfort's important. The other thing is that in, in many buildings, especially office buildings with floor to ceiling glass, what you'll have with your double low E glazing is you'll have a, a heating coil at the base, a baseboard heating coil, um, which warms the glass. It's really there for comfort only. Yeah. It's not there for, for, for heating the space, right? Yeah. And so a couple of architects have told me that if you go to triple glazing or better um, and you, you, you eliminate the perimeter heating, the cost savings from not having the heating pays for the extra cost of the glass. Absolutely. Yep. So here's again, we're back to the argument in, <clears throat> excuse me, you need to look at this from a systems point of view and do the accounting, the, the, the cost accounting from, from a systems point of view. So I think adding, now, now then you get into the issue, well, if I'm an architect, um, how do I know that that's all gonna work? You need the right tools, you need the right data. There's a bunch of other issues, but I think there's really big opportunities there. There's one other tiny piece I'll add which is to putting more value in, into, the, in, into the glazing itself. And you alluded to this also with the comment about Europe. In Europe, they also use heated glass. So you can put a coating on glass and run electricity through it. 
that will heat the glass. And that can also eliminate the need for complex piping and plumbing and stuff by the window. Now, you have to be careful. That only makes sense if the glass is super insulating. Right. But it's a very efficient way of doing it. And if it's done properly, I think it, it, it makes some sense. So there's another case where the performance of the glass has been expanded even even further to, to, to provide both comfort and energy efficiency. Yeah. Well, you're, the analogy about removing the kind of perimeter heating if your glazing is is uh, of high enough performance, um, just sort of speaks to the challenge of making that happen on a project. Sort of speaks to the need for more integration in that design process, which is sort of one of the major focuses of your career over over decades. And it, it seems like we are starting to move towards uh, that as people grapple with trying to reach net zero, trying to decarbonize their buildings. Yeah, I think I think the. Uh, so I think this this thermal nighttime winter insulating issue is is important as we've been discussing. I think in terms of the integration that you just raised again, um, the, the sort of landscape there where the where the activity there is more on the cooling side. So you've got this right. beautiful big piece of glass. It's comfortable. It's triple glazed, let's say. So it's and it's nice and clear, so you can see through it. Right. We want biophilia. We want the connection with the outdoors. Um, I've got lots of plants in my office and this is my home office, but anyway, everyone, everyone likes that. Right. Yep. So the question now is what, which we talked about at the, at the very start, what happens when the sun comes beaming in? Yep. So uh, now 25, 30 years ago, you'd put highly reflective glass on and that solved the solar control problem, uh, but didn't, didn't let the light in, didn't give you the view you wanted. So now you either want to have some type of smart shading blind shade shutters awnings whatever either inside the building or outside or between the glass or you want smart glass and there's been a huge amount of innovation billions of dollars of investment a lot of money that doe has funded at berkeley lab to to test this out prove it in flex lab and other things yeah, like yeah. that yeah. uh to show that the stuff really works and the good news is after i mean r d was going on this back in the 80s there are now two or three companies offering real products yep. Um, they're available in large size, but one of the and they they work as 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 told. I mean, they go from a you know sixty percent solar heating coefficient to ten percent, so it's about a six to one change in in yeah. controlling the solar gain. The challenge is you've got to integrate it properly. It's just a, it's just a different version of the daylight challenge. Sure. You have to know when to switch the coating, what level to switch it to. You switch it over the entire glazing or just part of the glazing. Yeah. You switch it over the entire glazing and you bring the light transmission from 60% down to 1%, guess what? Now the lights have to come yep, on again. Yep. Uh, so maybe you break the glass into different sections and switch different sections differently. So, you know, putting my science hat on, that's a great problem and challenge to solve. If you're a building owner or an architect or an engineer, you want to just nail it and get it right the first time. Yeah. And then it also requires that whatever it is you design actually works that way in the real world. <laughs> right. And you've accounted not only for the, BTUs and the kilowatt hours, but for people's perception of glare and all that. And that's where FlexLab and these other test facilities have become really important yeah, to, to solve that definitely. problem. So the answer to all of our questions is greater integration, <laughs> it seems. Yep. It definitely is. Um, and I think, again, uh, the good news there is that there are more opportunities, there's more, more technology, more solutions. Um, one of the challenges there is a, another term that comes with integration, I think, is interoperability. Yep. Uh, one of the problems is if every shading company and every smart glass company 
has their own way of wiring it up and controlling it. And they talk to every different dimmable lighting system in a different way. The poor contractor is going to be yeah. tearing their hair out yeah. to try to make the systems work. And so integration at that level, you know, becomes a real challenge. Now the industry is making some strides in that direction, but in my view, not, not fast enough and not enough. We've had some work in the Department of Energy funded work to try and do that. Um, DOE is also has some big new programs these days and what they call, uh, let's see if I get it right, GEB, uh, Grid Integrated Efficient Buildings. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they're interested in using the envelope that now, the, the dynamic envelope as a way to, to manage electric loads in the buildings. Right. Um, and I think that's all great, but lots of things have to happen before that can happen at scale. And I would make a distinction too between, I mean, a lot of our work historically was proving that it works on paper, proving that it works in the lab, proving that it works in a demonstration project. So there's three, three steps, right? Yeah. And now scaling it to yeah. all buildings and, you know, no problem. And, and, and the first, <laughs> right. Well, the first three, we've, I, I think we've done a pretty good job on the first three. So. Yep. That last one <laughs> takes lots of, lots of effort by lots of different players and it takes time and money and investment. And um, that's still, a, that's still a work in progress. I, I should mention just as one example, it's both good and bad of that back, back to New York city uh, back in the early, uh, let's see, 19 or, or around 2000, we were approached by the New York Times with a new headquarters building. Yeah. They had a beautiful design, uh, Renzo Piano building, interesting footprint to let more daylight in. So they already bought off on the theme of daylight and doing all that good stuff. They, they, they really nailed it. They said, okay, now we need a design that will actually work. And they went around to a whole bunch of architects and engineers and contractors and suppliers and you know couldn't get an out-of-the-box solution. So I'll, I'll collapse months and years of work <laughs> But we ended up working with them with funding from NYSERDA and DOE. Uh, we built a mock-up of a corner of their building in, in, uh, over in Queens. And we brought in all the vendors. And so they actually had the, the glass was already designed. We brought in all the lighting control vendors and the shading control guys and, and installed a bunch of systems and spent a year not in picking the winner, but in writing a spec. Right. And then the Times took that spec and bid it back out to the marketplace. So we've got this 1.6 million square foot building. We're going to buy thousands of shades and thousands of dimmable lighting systems. But you know, and, and we want you to to make them, but they need to meet this spec. And my sort of one sentence summary of all that is: I can write all the research papers from Lawrence Berkeley Lab about what people should do, and not many people pay attention. But when the New York Times or another big building owner says, "I'm going to buy product for a 1.6 million square foot building," the manufacturers actually changed. So in each case, the lighting company made a new product that was installed successfully. The shading company did. Those products then went on and were sold in other buildings as well. That's the good news. The bad news is we hope they would be installed in hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of buildings. And it's more like dozens or hundreds. We aren't at the, you know, at the scalable level yet. So still more work to do in the scaling. Yeah, there's still more work. Exactly. Exactly. Um, This has been a great, conversation. Uh, I really appreciate your time. I, you're officially retired from LBNL now, but, but what's, what's next for Steve Salkowitz? <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm still doing some, some work with them. Um, yeah. they, they just got, actually, they just got a new project from the state of California to uh, promote the th- thin triple glazings. And I would be a consultant to them. Oh, I'm great. also a consultant to some other national labs and some other groups. The work I've been doing overseas, I mentioned before, I've done some work in Norway and Singapore. Those are interesting because the scale is different. Those are at the city 
city community level, how, how, how to get to net zero at scale. So I, I, I did, you know, although I technically focused for 40 years at the lab on windows, daylight and glazing, um, I ran the whole buildings department for a long time. So I do have a broad interest in those much bigger issues and I'm spending more time thinking about that. I also just enjoy, you know, reading more, thinking more. I've got a grandson uh, who unfortunately <laughs> I, you know, lives in Los Angeles, used to visit on a monthly basis. That's on hold for a while, but uh, thinking about family, I've got a big garden going on now. So I'm mixing a continued engagement in writing and thinking and engaging with some partners uh, with some, you know, personal stuff as well. And I'm trying to find the right mix, but I'm going to be engaged for a while. And hopefully we'll keep working with you guys in, in New York City as well on uh, on your projects at the same time. I, I hope so very, very much. It sounds like a very, you've, you've uh, designed a very integrated and balanced uh, lifestyle, which uh, does not surprise me at all. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I designed it, but I fell into it, or I, at least I, 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 I think I've ended up there, which I'm quite happy. You about. have certainly earned it. Thank you. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for your time today. Um, really enjoyed this conversation, and we will continue to look out for, for your work um, moving forward. Thanks. Have All right. Day. Thanks, yeah. everyone, for joining us today. And uh, check out our calendar for uh, new events all the time. And uh, look forward to seeing many of you at an event soon once, <laughs> once we're back, uh, back and open for business, um, uh, in the, hopefully later in the year. Th thank you again, Stephen. Thank you.